From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello, friends, and welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today, and I am also not coming to you from our nation's capital. Today, I am coming to you from the great state of Arkansas, in Little Rock, Arkansas, where today and tomorrow I will be participating in a Worldview Summit with the Arkansas Family Council. Happy to be doing that. If you are in or near Little Rock, Arkansas, come join us. Come see us tonight. It would be great to see you at the Robinson Event Center in downtown Little Rock, but we've got a great show planned for you today because every day in America is a newsy day. I want to remind you that you can find the program at TonyPerkins.com, this and every episode of Washington Watch. But the news of today, lots of news out of Florida. Disney is losing some favorable tax status protections that they have received, that they have enjoyed since 1967. In addition, the state of Florida says that gender reassignment for young people is not the best way to deal with gender dysphoria, in stark contrast to what we've been hearing out of the White House. We're going to talk about uh, what Florida knows that the White House may not know today. In addition, the FDA has issued a warning about the risks of prenatal screening tests. What are the risks of trying to have a perfect baby? That's one of the conversations we're going to have today. In addition, we'll talk about, the, there's a lot of talk about the worldview of children these days, why they are not thinking biblically even within the church. Well, a recent study from our colleague George Barna in the Center for Biblical Worldview may have some clues as to why. It turns out only 2% of parents, according to his research, of preteens have a biblical worldview themselves. We may be discovering something. But first, our top news item of the day, the Department of Justice announced late yesterday that per the CDC's request, it will, it will appeal the federal judge's ruling that struck down the mask mandate for public transportation because the masking requirement for travelers has been set to expire May 3rd. It is believed the primary reason for this appeal is to avoid any legal precedent and pres preserve the CDC's authority for future mandates. And while the White House claims polling shows public opinion is split on the issue, the speed with which airlines and most airline authorities dropped any masking requirements indicates that most travelers are ready to move on. Now, joining me now to discuss this is Congressman Randy Weber from Texas. He's a member of the House Transportation Committee and the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Congressman Weber, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Joseph. We are in my truck driving. It might be a little bit noisy, but we're grateful to be here. Well, we are grateful to have you and grateful for you taking some time from the road. And perhaps the road is the best place to have this conversation about transportation and mask mandates. The Biden administration, after early indications that they would not appeal the decision, has now decided that they will. Are you surprised by this development? And what I'm surprised by is they didn't ask the teachers union what they thought the CDC ought to recommend. <laughs> turns out that apparently the teachers union was driving so much of what the CDC said. But no, I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, they're all about less freedom and more government control. That doesn't shock me at all. And I know you saw Biden today when he was asked by a reporter about the mask. He turned to Title 42. So he doesn't have a, 
he doesn't have a clue what's going on with the mask mandate, in my opinion, Joseph. Well, there's no doubt that the story, the narrative coming out of the White House has changed, and it's changed on Title 42, and we'll get to that. And it has changed even in the last 72 hours on this mask mandate since the Florida judge made her decision. And one of the concerns and one of the topics is what is driving the White House's decision to appeal this? Now, yesterday, Jen Psaki had this to say about why it would possibly be important to appeal. Let's go ahead and, and play clip two, then I want to give you a chance to respond. And the Department of Justice, as you noted, has indicated uh, that they would appeal, uh, not just because they think it's entirely reasonable, uh, of course, to have this additional time to look at it, but because they think uh, that the current, uh, for current and future public health crises, uh, we want to preserve that, that uh, authority for the CDC to have in the future. Congressman Weber, what's your reaction to that? How scary is that? They want to preserve the authority to ride herd over Americans' free will. How scary is that? And let me add this too, Joseph. They talk, They want to get back to the CDC. The scientists is what, who the president cited earlier, I think, today. They want to get back to the scientists. And, of course, we all know what a joke that was coming from CDC. And it's funny that they refer to the science on the mask mandates. But when you start talking about transgender and the, 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 that agenda that they're pushing, and a doctor who is a scientist by, by trade, doctor with all those years of medical training, looks at a baby and says, that's a boy or that's a girl. What about that science? They forget about that science. Now they want to tout science and they want to shove masks, you know, uh, almost up the American people's nose, but at least cover part of their face. It's so hypocritical, it's scary. Well, you make a good point. A lot of us feel like the line between science and opinion is being blurred. And on issues like this, uh, it's easy to see why. If it's not possible, if you're not a biologist, to tell the difference between men and women, uh, the questions about the, uh, the effectiveness of mass become all the more complex when even the simple is very complex. Now, uh, Congressman Weber, States, in some cases, are insisting that they are going to maintain these mandates. And I want to play clip one. Here's Governor Hockle from New York explaining why, despite whatever the federal government is doing, they want to keep their mandates. Let's just be smart about it. You know, I think people do feel better when they're in public transit, sitting really close to somebody, uh, to know that people are, are protecting themselves. And again, this is very much in the short term. What's your reaction to that? Well... On one hand, you want to talk about federalism. States have the right to make their own laws. But now you get into interstate commerce clause of the Constitution. If I, people in Texas get this, they don't want to, have to do it with mass, the vast majority of them, especially in my district. They're freedom-loving people. They make their own decisions. They believe in science, God-given science. You mentioned a biblical worldview earlier. That's exactly what we believe in. The problem becomes, Joseph, that if you're going to fly from Texas to another state, Washington, D.C., now you're crossing interstate you know, lines, so it's interstate or state lines, so it's interstate commerce. Uh, I think that people ought to vote with their feet, move out of those states where those governors have the, that kind of idea. As Jen Psaki said, they want to preserve authority, basically, to be able to do whatever they want with Americans. That's right. And according to a morning consult political poll, it found that 
two-thirds of Americans supported the extension of the mandate. And this poll was taken before the Florida judge's decision. But anecdotally, looking around America's airports now, it looks like the supermajority of Americans were happy to take their masks off. Where do you think the public is on this issue? Well, I think the, it depends on how they phrase, you know this, Justin, it depends on how they phrase the question and who they, and who they polled. And you can get any answer you want. Did they poll the flying public who fly frequently? Did they poll the did they poll the people who believe that the state is the end all be all cure all and the state is their God? Who did they poll to get that answer? I, I guarantee you in Texas, especially in District 14, boy, that number is way underwater for us. Well, I want to change the subject on you for a moment, if I can, uh, to Ukraine. Today, the White House announcing an additional $500 million, $800 million in military resources, another five hundred in direct economic assistance to the Ukrainian government. Is this the right move? Is it the right move? I have to look yes. at some of what, what they're requiring. I, do they need to come back to Congress? We would love for the president to get Congress's approval on any spending. Obviously, this president is derelict in his duties. He's derelict in a whole bunch of different ways, too, but I won't go there. Uh, he should have been working on stuff around the when the Russians started amassing at the border, he should have been paying attention and getting assets moved. He should have not shut down the Keystone Pipeline. He should not have made an energy crisis over here. And of course, then what did he do? He turns and blames it on Putin after he has shut down our Keystone Pipeline, which comes into my district, 840,000 barrels of oil a day. Remember the colonial pipeline system last year got shut down by computer hacks. It fed the entire southeastern part of the United States, about 3 million barrels of product a day. The Keystone Pipeline carries over one-fourth of the same capacity. He shuts that down, he opens up Russia's Nord Stream 2, then he begs the Saudis to increase production. This guy has done such a number on us, and now he wants to blame inflation and all this on Putin. He knew Putin was set to invade Ukraine. He waited way too long to act. He's doing ostensibly the same thing on the island just south of China, our good friends in Taiwan. And so this guy just, as a commander in chief, he gets an F minus minus in my book. Well, Congressman, I know that there are a lot of Americans who feel the same way. And in fact, public opinion generally shows that he's underwater on a range of issues that might be influencing how he's handling the mass situation and the equivocation that he's happening. And now the last question, I want to get the last issue I'd like to get in with you is at the border. And this is President Biden talking about Title 42 and the border policy. That's clip five. Let's go ahead and play that. No, what I'm considering is continuing to hear from my uh, my uh, first of all, there's going to be an appeal by the Justice Department. Because as a matter of principle, we want to be able to be in a position where if, in fact, it is strongly concluded by the scientists that we need Title 42, that we'd be able to do that. But there has been no decision on extending Title 42. Congressman Weber, can you interpret that for the American people? I, I tell you what, yeah, it's, it's called, it's, you, hear, you hear the term PC, politically correct. For him, it's pure confusion. That's his PC mindset, pure confusion. 
the stuff going on at the border, you know this, Title 42 was from World War II. We ought to be able to turn people away that come from a country where there's a where there's infectious disease, and that's a pandemic that we're experiencing. As you know, our great President Trump did that. He used that. They ought to be extending it. If you read back on Title 42, the law, Joseph, you'll find out that it actually gives the Surgeon General the power to make those decisions with and, and, you know, advising the president, if you will, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't think they ever envisioned that we'd have such an inept president when that law was put into effect in 1944, I think. And so this guy's totally out of touch. Now, I have filed a bill, Joseph, that says if the four countries south of us, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Mexico, don't start stemming the tide of people coming north, we shut off all of their foreign aid. That was filed. I don't know. It's my notes are on my phone. I'm talking from, I think, 10 days ago, give or take, has originally, right now originally nine, nine original co-sponsors. So we're starting to push that among our colleagues, say, look, and Greg Abbott had the right idea. Shut down the truck traffic from Mexico, make them pay at the border. And those American, I'm sorry, those Mexican governors, those states will pay attention. And now what, we, what I'm suggesting we do is we shut down all foreign aid those four countries south of us until they stem that tide. Well, we look forward to following up on that and seeing if the White House is receptive to that and certainly the rest of Congress as well. It is interesting that while the White House can, seems to insist that COVID is not over, therefore we still need federal mask mandates, it may be, they may be suggesting that COVID is over at the border because Title 42 exists to prohibit viruses from coming coming across the border and they seem to not think that's necessary anymore but we will continue to follow this story congressman weber we appreciate your time today thank you very much hey, thank you joseph appreciate what y'all are doing thank you stay with us when we come back lots of news out of florida today disney's special treatment ending we'll talk about it when we come back Everything we do begins as an idea. Before there can be acts of courage, there must be the belief that some things are worth sacrificing for. Before there can be marriage, there is the idea that man should not be alone. Before there was freedom, there was the idea that individuals are created equal. It's true that all ideas have consequences, but we're less aware that all consequences are the fruit of ideas. Before there was murder, there was hate. Before there was a holocaust, there was the belief by some people that other people are undesirable. 
Our beliefs determine our behavior, and our beliefs about life's biggest questions determine our worldview. Where did I come from? Who decides what is right and wrong? What happens when I die? Our answers to these questions explain why people see the world so differently. Debates about abortion are really disagreements about where life gets its value. Debates over sexuality and gender and marriage are really disagreements about whether the rules are made by us or for us. What we think of as political debates are often much more than that. They're disagreements about the purpose of our lives and the source of truth. As Christians, our goal must be to think biblically about everything. Our goal is to help you see beyond red and blue, left and right, to see the battle of ideas at the root of it all. Our goal is to equip Christians with a biblical worldview and help them advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square. Cultural renewal doesn't begin with campaigns and elections. It begins with individuals turning from lies to truth. But that won't happen if people can't recognize a lie and don't believe truth exists. We want to help you see the spiritual war behind the political war, the truth claims behind the press release, and the forest from the trees. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony, coming to you from Little Rock, Arkansas today. So glad that you are with us. Lots of news out of the state of Florida today. Yesterday, we told you that the Florida State Senate passed a bill revoking a special tax district that Disney had taken advantage of since 1967. Well, today, the Florida House of Representatives passed the same bill. It now goes to Governor Ron DeSantis's desk for his signature. In other news out of Florida, the Florida Department of Health released new guidance yesterday that opposes transgender drugs and surgeries for children and rejects the recent statements by the Biden administration regarding what they call gender-affirming care. Joining me now to discuss all of it is Florida State Senator Dennis Baxley. Senator Baxley, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. We are glad to have you. You voted on this bill yesterday. The state house voted on the bill today. There was quite a scene on the House of the Florida State Representatives, uh, House of Representatives today. I want to play clip four and then get you a chance to respond to that. The clerk will unlock the machine and members will proceed to vote on Senate Bill 4C. Have all members voted? Have all members voted? Clerk will lock the machine, announce a vote. 70 days, 38 days. Show the bill passes. Senator Baxley, uh, a lot of energy there in the state house. Was it like that in the Senate as well? No, we, we actually had a very calm meeting. There are some intense emotions about how to interpret this map. But in fact, uh, this is the map that the governor chose to be involved in. We had sent him a different map, uh, but he does sign off on that. So he's sort of the final checkpoint. And he's convinced that some of what we're doing with these uh, specified districts, uh, major majority minority districts, is inappropriate. Matter of fact, some of them fall below any majority in the district. Uh, it's down around 41%. And um, so anyway, he is challenging that concept. And we also have a number of people elected in the Senate that 
uh, are African American who ran in districts that aren't enumerated to be minority majority districts, and yet they win. So I, I actually think it's a good measure that assimilation has improved, and that's Se the Senator Baxley. Yes, I, I want to be clear because I know we're talking about a lot of districts, and I'm specifically referring to the tax district that Disney uh, it it was involved with and the scene around the repeal of their tax treatment. And there's been some indications that in the past, it's been the left, it's been the Democrats who were concerned about Disney as a corporation getting special treatment from the government. Now they seem to be the ones who are concerned about having that special treatment taken away. Is that true? Is that what's been happening in Florida? Uh, yes. Well, this confrontation on with Disney uh, coming out and saying we should not have passed the bill and they were going to fight to have it repealed uh, put us in a very awkward position with them. And so there was a review of what are the things that we do for them. They have thousands of issues. This is one issue, this bill, uh, which has to do with just affirming that parents are in charge and they have a say in what they're exposed to at school and that uh, we would not teach uh, these kinds of issues in kindergarten through third grade. And after that, it would be what is age appropriate by uh, state standards. So this was the reaction uh, a little bit late. I never had, I sponsored this bill I never had anybody call me from Disney until after it was all over. And uh, then it was trying to kind of patch the gate because they knew they have a very unique uh, situation with their community districts. And the way that worked out was uh, uh, that they were trying to attract Disney to Florida back in the 60s, uh, 67. This thing is wide open. They answered a no local government. They have their own kingdom. Uh, they do their own permitting. They do their own planning. There's no one outside. They do law enforcement. They do uh, all these things under this broad district, uh, also uh, emergency care. And uh, they do some gun control, too, because uh, I know I have a son that's been in there as a, as a police officer with a concealed weapon, and they pulled him out and talked to him for a while, and then they followed everywhere he went in the park. So Senator Baxter, it's, a, it's an isolated world. Yeah. And in this issue, this, this apparent conflict between Disney and the state of Florida is receiving a lot of attention. Is this a case of the Florida legislature simply updating some code that needed to be updated in light of the world that we live in now, as opposed to 1967? Or is this intended to influence how Disney behaves politically in the future? I think it's more about shedding light that we had a very special arrangement with them. Uh, they support the majority party members, and we usually try to accommodate their need. They're a huge employer for us. But all this exposure, their brand is in serious decay. Uh, used to anything Disney was wholesome family stuff. And so uh, there was not a lot the same questionings. Uh, but then we started looking back at what are our agreements and what kind of authorities do we have with them. And we discover we're in this posture that hasn't been reviewed in 50 years. So it's mm -hmm. going to be a... Difficult exercise for them, I think, to come out of this unscathed. 
quite frankly, I think they did some poor calculating that if they uh, attacked the governor and the legislature in the position they took, uh, plus they didn't come up during discussion, they, they came up and after the fact. And uh, so they're caught in this gap between uh, their um, gay staff and their cartooning and stuff like that. Then you started looking at the content. Used to, you had full confidence. If it was Disney, then it was wholesome. And But now they've embraced the woke uh, outlook and uh, they're promoting this uh, intervention. Do you really trust Senator, them even the kids? Senator, actually, I had, I had wanted to get into the next topic because the state of Florida has issued guidance around how to deal with children who have gender dysphoria in direct conflict with what the White House has told us. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so we're going to have to do that again. Uh, Senator Baxley, thank yeah. you so much for your time today. Great. You bet. And we will continue that conversation. But when we come back, the FDA warns of risks associated with a non-invasive prenatal screening test. Parents increasingly trying to have perfect babies, but is there a downside? We'll talk about it when we come back here on. All of us are born with the desire to find truth and meaning. Where did I come from? What happens when I die? While our answers to these questions may divide us, we are united in our need for the freedom to answer life's biggest questions and make life's biggest decisions for ourselves. That's why religious freedom matters for everyone. Religious freedom matters because the powerful have long wanted to control those who are less powerful. Religious freedom matters because the freedom of those who are different is often threatened by those who believe different is dangerous. Leah Sherabu, a Christian teenager in Nigeria, remains a captive of Boko Haram for her refusal to renounce her Christian faith. Chinese pastor Wang Yi is serving a nine-year sentence for speaking publicly against the Chinese government. In Pakistan, Asif Purvez is on death row for allegedly sending a blasphemous text message. All of this because people in power decided different is dangerous. the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. We promote religious freedom for everyone because the only alternative is religious freedom for no one. We encourage Americans and the American government to engage and advocate for the persecuted, and they do. We work every day to bring good news to the afflicted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. We do it because that's what Jesus does. We work to give freedom to others because we ourselves have been set free. Hello friends and welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm coming to you today from Little Rock, Arkansas. Grateful for your time and attention, and we hope to serve you well. Earlier this week, the FDA issued a warning about the risks 
for false results and inappropriate interpretations from non-invasive prenatal screening tests. Now, according to the agency, these tests can lead to improper medical decisions as the FDA has received reports that patients have had abortions based on results from these tests without understanding their limitations. And joining us now to discuss this is Mary Zock, the director of the Center for Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Mary, good to see you today. Thanks so much for having me again, Joseph. Tell us a bit more about these tests and where this announcement came from. Well, a few months ago, the New York Times published an expose on these genetic tests, and they revealed that about 85% of the time, the genetic testing that is so frequently offered and pushed on women who, who are um, at, their, at their OB appointment, um, that genetic testing is actually inaccurate about 85% of the time. And this was really shocking to people because they've, they've been told by these genetic testing companies, you know, these are, this is highly accurate information. This is, this will give you peace of mind. Well, what these tests do is they, they, they cause a lot of worry, um, but they have also led to a number of abortions. Of course, every single abortion is, is a tragedy. Um, and in, in these cases, uh, people who perhaps otherwise would not have considered abortion have done so because of the eugenicist mentality that has been pushed on them by the pro-abortion industry. And that really is the word you just used there, a strong eugenicist. And the idea of eugenics is a tragic one, but really the motive behind these tests in many cases is simply, does my baby have a problem? And the implied question is, if my baby has a problem, then maybe we don't want the baby. And that, of course, is exactly what eugenics is. Mary, how common are these tests? They're very common. You know, I, I am fortunate in that for my OB appointments, I went to a pro-life doctor who, who spoke about the false positive rate of these tests. But just about every woman who's going to an OB appointment receives information on these tests. Um, I've had numerous friends talk about how highly recommended the tests are. They're seen as standard procedure. This is what, what you get when you go to your OB appointment. Um, and even if you look at the FDA's, uh, FDA's report on this, they said, you know, that, that the lack of knowledge about the false positive rate of these tests has led to, led, led to people making inappropriate healthcare decisions. Well, what they're talking about is a decision to, to kill someone's child. Um, and, right. and you know, under the guise of this, uh, formulating this to be an inappropriate healthcare decision is really um, just just trying to to steer away from what's actually happening here. Now, my understanding of these tests is that they are intended to be screening devices and not necessarily diagnosis tools. And one of the challenges is that they're being treated as a diagnosis rather than a screening device. For parents who may get a positive test about something that concerns them or alarms them, is there a follow-up that can be done to find out if, in fact, there's actually something to be concerned about? 
Well, there are follow-up tests that can be done. The the thing with these tests is they're not as invasive as as other testing that has been done in the past that is more definitive. Um, but you know, in the FDA's report, one of the things they say is it, these tests screen for for rare conditions like DeGeorge syndrome, and if if a child has that, that can lead to you know, heart defects, it can lead to learning disabilities, difficulty feeding. Well, the FDA is essentially saying your child's future includes suffering. And what they don't say is that is true of every single <laughs> child's future. We live in a fallen world. That's, that's suffering is part of all of our lives. What they leave out though, is that if your child does have one of these rare genetic disorders, if your child has physical or intellectual disabilities, there will also be moments of joy and there will be great love. And, and I can say that as a sibling of, of a woman, a beautiful, wonderful woman who has both physical and intellectual disabilities, no genetic tests could tell the beauty and the joy and the love that she's brought to my family. Right. Now, Mary, uh, it seems here this could be a light coming out of a dark place because even the fact that we're raising the issue here saying, well, we could make a mistake and abort a healthy baby implies that aborting a healthy baby is a problem in some ways. And of course, we make the argument that aborting every baby is a problem. But is this an accidentally pro-life statement coming out of the Biden administration? Well, I think, as you said, Joseph, aborting every child is is a tragedy the fact that they have more concern for the abortion of a healthy child than they do for the abortion of a child who who may have a genetic disorder um, shows the the eugenesis mentality that has permeated our society but at the same time if it leads to more parents questioning these genetic tests if it leads to more parents taking the chance that 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 the test could right. be wrong, if it leads to fewer abortions, it is a good thing. And the FDA acknowledging has, yeah. acknowledging that abortion can be bad is the start, I think. And Mary, sadly, we are out of time, so I've got to let you go. But thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Joseph. Stay with us when we come back. Is the reason that children don't have a biblical worldview because their parents don't? We'll talk about it. It begins here, and here, and here, every day. Before you stand, you need solid ground. Standing in a culture that wants you to surrender the truth won't work unless you have a firm foundation. At Family Research Council, we have that firm foundation, and you can find us standing. We stand for the value of all human life, we stand for the right of families to flourish. And every day we stand for your freedom to believe and to live out those beliefs both at home and abroad. We work with government officials, educating them on the issues from a biblical worldview. And when necessary, we hold them accountable. We equip Christians across America to be informed and to take action in their communities. With our daily radio program, television appearances, and vast online presence, we reach people where they are. We envision an America where all human life is valued, families flourish, and religious liberty thrives. 
That won't be realized if we're not standing. Stand for faith. Stand for family. Stand for freedom. Stand with us at FRC. King David wrote of God's word as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is a timeless truth. For those through the centuries that have embraced this truth, they have found the Word of God provides a solid foundation for life. That's why the Family Research Council has embarked upon a two-year chronological Bible reading plan called Stand on the Word. We've made it easy for you to read through the Bible in two years by taking just 10 to 15 minutes, six days a week. And to encourage you on the journey, I have a brief eight to 10 minute devotional each morning, Monday through Friday, that accompanies the reading. You can join me by going to frc.org slash Bible. That's frc.org slash Bible. Or you can join me on my Facebook page, Tony Perkins, each morning at 844 Eastern Time. Again, the website, frc.org slash Bible, or on Facebook at Tony Perkins. Join us, and together we will stand on the Word. Back to Washington Watch, Joseph back home, sitting in for Tony today. It's that time of the week again, our Worldview Friday, and my conversation with my colleague David Clausen, who's FRC's director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. Over the last two years, there's been a lot of chatter about education, much of it inspired by COVID. Who's in charge? Parents? or school administrators? Should critical race theory be taught or not? Increasingly, one of the questions that these questions have led to is, should Christians send their kids to public schools at all? It's not a simple question, but it's one worth talking about, and that is the subject of our worldview conversation today with David Clausen. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be with you, Joseph. Well, it's great to see you. Now, this is a sensitive subject, and that's what I want to talk about first. Uh, you and I have dealt with a lot of controversial issues. We deal with same-sex marriage and gender and all sorts of things that will uh, get people emotional. But I would propose to you that you go into any church in America today, and if you want to get people excited, if you want to uh, emote, get, get people's emotions and passions um, arise, this is one of the subjects that you could talk to them about and say, hey, you know, you shouldn't go to public schools or absolutely you should go to public schools. So before we get into the meat of that, why do you think this is such a difficult conversation for Christians to have? Well, first of all, Joseph, you're absolutely right how important this conversation is, the emotions that it evokes. Uh, just look at some of the big elections just earlier this week in San Francisco, a very, very progressive city. They had a recall and kicked three uh, members of the school board off the school board because uh, parents were so fired up 
about decisions that were being made. In Virginia last year, one of the reasons Glenn Youngkin won a state that had gone for Joe Biden by 10 points the year prior was largely this school issue. And I think the reason people get so fired up about this issue is because this is about our children. Uh, you know, and we're specifically going to talk about Christian parents, but I think all parents, uh, you know, have that natural instinct that I, w I believe comes from the Lord uh, to want to protect and nurture uh, and defend their children. So that, that's why this is such an important issue for parents, uh, regardless of political party or background or, or views on a whole host of other issues. I think that's fair. And I think when you talk about this subject, um, Anytime you say this is what parents should do, there's this implication that that means parents should not do something else. And parents get very defensive, understandably so, when you hear somebody making an argument that suggests perhaps they would do the wrong thing with their kid, or even worse, they already have done the wrong thing with their kids. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is a difficult conversation. And it's one of the reasons we need to enter it with a lot of grace. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I say as the parent of four ch child on behalf of all parents, um, none of us is perfect and none of us has done this, you know, perfectly. Um, but I do want to ask this, you know, if a parent came to you and asked you the question, should my, should I send my child to a public school? What are the things that you're going to think about? What are the things that you're going to encourage them to think about? Yeah, I think the first place that I would start with any parent, because this, after all, is our biblical worldview segment, is I want to start with the Bible. And we know, Joseph, the, the statistic that you and I have talked about multiple times on this show is, you know, 81% of those who attend church think they have a biblical worldview, when in reality, it's only about 21%. So I'd, I would start with a verse that I'd like to read. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, I think is a key text for how parents should see their responsibility to their children. This is one of the most well-known passages in the Old Testament. Uh, in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And then here in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. And then it goes on from there. So I think the place to start the conversation is to remind, especially Christian parents, uh, that you are the chief disciple maker in your home. Uh, your responsibility, first and foremost, is to care for your children, to nourish them. Uh, having children is a special stewardship from the Lord. So I think that's the first step. Uh, we just need to remind Christian parents of what God's Word says about their responsibility as parents. And then from there, I would look at the, the pros and cons of public school, private school, home school, and whatever the options uh, that would be uh, facing each parent. So do you think it's possible that if we frame the question as, should you send your kid to a public school or not, are we asking the wrong question? Should we be more fundamentally considering what is the best way to disciple my child? What's the best environment for them to be formed spiritually in the way that Jesus wants them to be? I think so, Joseph, because again, education, what, what is education? It's really a form of discipleship. You are, uh, you're imparting information, but you're, you're more than just imparting head knowledge. Part of the education system is you are teaching people to love certain things. Uh, there's, a, there's a morality, there's an ethics that is uh, intertwined with uh, education. Right before we came on the show, I, I just Googled pros and cons of public school just to see what <laughs> showed up. 
And uh, most of the things that were there was, you know, well, one of the pros is that it's free and that teachers have to have credentials and that uh, there's opportunities for extracurriculars. And I think all of those things are important things to think about. What, what does your family value? What's important? But I do think, first and foremost, if I'm a Christian parent, I'm thinking in, uh, about the, 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 the education of my child in terms of discipleship and in terms of forming their loves. And I, so I do think that's probably a helpful way to even just approach the conversation from the beginning. I think that's wise. And the, the point that you've made that I'll underline again here in, in the way we think about this, because I, I want to make sure we are asking the right questions, be, in part because it's so emotional, in part because it's so important, that the job of Christians, of course, is to fulfill the Great Commission, and that is to go out into all the world and make disciples. And when you're a parent, the first person or the first people that you have the obligation to make disciples of is your children that God gives you, right? And that's part of what you read there out of Deuteronomy chapter six. So the question we have to ask is, what is the best way to make disciples of our children? How would you evaluate that question given the options? And you mentioned them, there are, there are government schools, there are public schools, homeschooling is an option that people are increasingly choosing. How would you evaluate the question of, What's the best way to make disciples among those options? Yeah, I think each option does have some things going for it, some things that, uh, you know, parents should think about deeply. You know, homeschooling, I think, is a, a wonderful option for so many families because you can control the content. You can control exactly what the children are uh, learning, the lessons. You can, you can walk through it. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, bad influences in the classroom. Uh, so obviously, I think homeschooling is a wonderful option. It's the option my parents chose for many years, and I'm grateful they did. Uh, private school is another great option. Then um, there's different types of private school, though. Uh, there are classical schools. There's private Christian schools. And all, all private schools are not created equal, Joseph. Let me just read one. There's actually a, an article that came out just a couple days ago highlighting the National Association of Independent Schools. This is an organization that provides guidance to 1,600 private schools K through 12 uh, in the United States. And what they were doing, it was actually uh, making sure that gender ideology was being put in every classroom. It was kind of an expose, undercover journalism uh, that Breitbart did. But what they found out is that the, this information that this group was putting into 1,600 private schools was information where they were talking about as young as pre-K about bodies, about the body parts uh, ch children are born with, if body parts is what makes you a boy or a girl, or whether it's feelings. And so I think we just, at the, you know, we need to acknowledge uh, not all private schools are created equal. Um, I think uh, that's important. And then obviously with public yeah. schools, um, we can talk about public schools, the government schools. I, FRC tracks things that the Biden administration are doing. There's a whole host of things that the Department of Education has done in the last year that, in my view, make public schools uh, something that I would be very, I would be hesitant to send my kid to a public school, um, knowing some of the things that the Biden administration is doing. But again, I do think every parent has to look at their own situation and take it to the Lord. Let, let's not take prayer out of this equation. We need to ask the Lord what you're calling us to do each and every year and be willing to evaluate that every school year. 
Uh, David, I want to take exception with one thing you said. You suggested there that uh, when you homeschool, there are no bad influences in the classroom. And for those of us who have multiple children, I assure you that is not always the case, uh, that there could be uh, bad influences in the classroom at home as well. Now, my wife got her master's degree in education. And uh, at a public university, the University of Washington and Seattle, as we all know, is uh, not a uh, hotbed of conservatism or Christian values. And one of the things that she concluded, and, and she and I are frankly uh, products of public education. We both graduated from a public high school. But she determined after finishing her master's degree, the thing that she concluded was that I'm never going to send my kid to a public school as a result of that. And that was an interesting takeaway for me. Um, do you think that the public school system has the same goals as parents who are trying to, to raise their children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Increasingly, no. And I would actually say a resounding no, um, especially over just the last year. And of course, that didn't just happen with the Biden administration. Um, but Joseph, just a couple of things. Just, let me just be pointed. Uh, one of the, the some of the major goals that you're seeing in public schools around the country, under the auspice of the Department of Education, uh, is increasing uh, gender ideology. That being put into the classrooms, uh, critical race theory. Again, that's you know that's in the news all the time. People say that it's not being taught. Well, we see example after example where it is being put into the classroom. Um, but just a couple, let me just give you two examples of what's happening in our public schools, because I, I think a lot of people don't realize this. Uh, but after the uh, Biden administration took office, one month into being into office, uh, they directed through to the Department of Education uh, that the Bostock decision, uh, which is a decision that uh, the Supreme Court came out with a couple of years ago, where they redefined the term sex. And now the Department of Education is saying under Title IX, sex is now to be understood as including gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, on August the 2nd, just a couple of months ago, the White House actually released a fact sheet talking about how, uh, how they're going to reopen schools. You know, there's a lot of issues going on with COVID and masks and social distancing. With all of those health issues going on, they still felt the need to put out guidance, um, a comprehensive guidance on how Title IX enshrines uh, gender ideology in schools. Um, and one other thing, Joseph, uh, President Biden successfully nominated uh, uh, Catherine Lamont as, as Assistant Secretary of the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education. She was confirmed 51 to 50. Uh, it took the vice president uh, to block that tie. Now that she's in place, uh, she is now overseeing the way civil rights is uh, handled in the Department of Education. This is someone who, under the Obama administration, put out a dear colleague letter uh, that said that boys who identify as girls should be allowed to use restrooms that conform to their gender identity. Uh, this is someone who, in that same letter, said that biological boys should be allowed to use uh, the, the dormitories uh, that girls are, are housed in on overnight school trips, and in this same letter that she put out, said that teachers should use the preferred pronouns and preferred names of students in their class. Again, this is a, a, a person who is leading the Department of Education, appointed by the president, and let me just add, the secretary of the Department of Education, uh, Miguel Cordona, 
when asked in his confirmation hearing if biological boys should be allowed to compete against biological girls on sports teams, he could not answer the question. So again, to your question, what are the goals and the aims and the objectives of public education? Increasingly, it is not reading, writing, and arithmetic. It is gender ideology and other goals of the progressive left in this country. Parents do need to know that. Yeah. And I think operating with an awareness of the landscape that we're actually operating in is important because those of us who are products of public education, many of us, and I will include myself in this, have very fond memories. I can't think of anything that happened. And now I went to a, a, a private Christian school early in my life, ended up graduating uh, from a public high school, did my entire uh, high school career in a public high school. And I honestly, when I reflect back on that, I can't think of a single moment where I was like, oh, that was terrible. That should have never happened. So I actually have pretty good memories of my public school experience. And so a lot of us who are now parents, we remember that and we think, oh, it's really not that bad. And I think one of the important things to realize for parents is how much the landscape has changed. And one other thing I'll say about this is that, as you've pointed out, it's not really uh, a public school or private school situation. There are public schools that may be good partners with parents, because there are some towns in America that are mostly, those schools are, are, are filled with people that share our worldview. And there are private schools that are just as hostile as you know downtown San Francisco or downtown Seattle or downtown uh, Washington, D.C. public schools might be to Christian values. So it's not public-private. It's are they good partners in discipleship or are they not good partners in discipleship? And I'll also say as much attention as something like critical race theory and gender theory has gotten, we as parents shouldn't think about this in terms of, I just want to protect my kid from all the bad stuff while they're in school. I hope that we have a higher standard and that we really think about these years of education as opportunities to fill our kids with good stuff, to equip them with the tools they're going to need to not only withstand the darkness, but to push back against the darkness and make progress against the kingdom of hell. We need to be building soldiers who are capable of engaging in this battle effectively and we only do that by asking the right questions and by partnering with the right people. But David, uh, my little sermonette is over and I'm gonna wrap it up there because we're out of time, but really appreciate your time and being with us as always. Thank you, Joseph. And friends, that is what we got for today. Pray about your education situations. Pray for Ukraine, that peace would prevail, that lives would be defended. And in all you do, fear God, and nothing else. We'll see you next time Washington here on Watch Washington Tony Watch. Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.